This is the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. One of the best ways to learn is by reflecting on the mistakes and successes of others. Each episode within this series will showcase one of the many case histories developed by GBA and its member firms. They're a collection of stories that cover many different disciplines within the geo professions, each with a unique message and lesson learned. We hope you enjoy this podcast and encourage you to share the lessons learned with others at your organization. Welcome to the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. My name is Jen Sanborn. I'm an environmental consultant at Sanborn Head and Associates and a member of GBA's Emerging Leaders Class and Environmental Business Committee. Today, we're delving into GBA's case history number 61, which revolves around an environmental site characterization project and has lessons that transcend to all of the geo professions. I like this case history because it encompasses mistakes and successes, and in the end, something that the geo professional firm did right ultimately led to a favorable outcome. As part of this podcast, I sat down with Andrew Batson, the Corporate Counsel and Compliance Manager at Sanborn Head & Associates, and a member of GBA's Legal Affairs Committee. We spoke about the legal aspects of this case and what ultimately saved the day for the consultant. You'll hear clips of that interview throughout today's podcast. Now, I do want to mention that while Andrew and I both work at Sanborn Head, Sanborn Head was not involved with the events that occurred in this case history in any way. Stay tuned, and this episode will show what can go wrong without diligent information gathering, but how your report and contract language can ultimately save the day, or at least make it a little less bad. Before getting into the story, I wanted to start out by sharing a little background on some of the key technical concepts covered by this episode for those of you that work in other areas. We'll start with Phase 2 environmental site assessments, which are also referred to as Phase 2 ESAs throughout the episode. Generally, Phase 2 ESAs are investigations that consist of drilling into the ground to look for the presence of contamination by collecting soil and groundwater samples. They are commonly conducted as part of a property transfer so that the buyer can understand the potential environmental liabilities from contamination. In this particular case, A Phase 2 ESA was conducted to check whether the gas station's underground storage tanks, also referred to as USTs, which held the station's fuel and waste oil, may have leaked and contaminated the soil and groundwater. The term downgradient is used in the episode and refers to the direction in which groundwater flows. A common practice of Phase 2 ESAs is to drill a soil boring downgradient of a UST. This means that the soil boring intercepts groundwater that has flowed through the UST area and would likely be contaminated if the UST had leaked. This episode talks a lot about issues that occurred because the soil borings did not go deep enough to hit the groundwater table. When this happens, a conclusive assessment cannot be made as to whether groundwater has been contaminated at that location, essentially leaving a loose end to the investigation. Another term that's used in this episode is hydrocarbon contamination, which means that petroleum products are the source of the contamination. This is an important distinction in this case because it indicates that the contamination likely originated from leaking USTs. 
Lastly, I used the term remediating soil and groundwater, which means that actions were being undertaken to clean up the contamination. So now to get into the story. The owner of a gas station, who we'll call Larry, wants to retire and decides to sell. Larry's real estate agent markets the gas station to his wife's brothers, who we'll call the Smith brothers, who decided that they're interested in buying it, but they didn't want anything to do with the phase two environmental site assessment, which was required by the bank to look for potential subsurface contamination. The real estate agent suggested that Larry hire a firm to conduct the phase two environmental site assessment on the Smith brothers' behalf as part of the deal, and Larry agrees. Larry hired an environmental consulting firm and met with one of their new project managers to conduct a site walk of the gas station. Larry doesn't say much, and the new project manager doesn't ask many questions, and therefore the environmental history of the property and surrounding properties is never discussed. As it turns out, Larry is aware that a nearby restaurant used to be a gas station and that a spill had occurred there, but never mentioned it. This will be important later. The consulting firm hired a drilling company to advance soil borings down gradient of four underground storage tanks at the gas station, including one waste oil underground storage tank, or UST. Extensive contamination was encountered in soil down gradient of the waste oil UST, but groundwater was not encountered in the borings, and the firm did not continue to advance the borings down to groundwater. Larry instructed the consulting firm to remove the waste oil, UST, and surrounding contaminated soil, which they hired a subcontractor to do, and it was completed without incident. The consulting firm prepared a report, which included a statement that the firm was making no representations about hydrocarbon contamination of groundwater, because the firm's drill crew had not encountered any groundwater during the explorations. The report also stated that the report was intended for the exclusive use of the owner and excluded any type of warranty, express or implied. Everything appeared to be fine. The final report was sent to the bank, who approved it. The sale went through, and the Smith brothers leased the gas station back to Larry, who had agreed to run it while the brothers found a purchaser. So now we're going to fast forward by two years. A major oil company expressed interest in buying the gas station from the Smith brothers. However, the contract was contingent upon a second phase two environmental site assessment. And this time a different consultant was hired and drilled to groundwater where significant hydrocarbon contamination was discovered. The depth to groundwater was only about 10 to 15 feet deeper than the borings for the prior phase two ESA the oil company ended up canceling the deal. The Smith brothers moved forward with having all of the tanks removed and started down the path of remediating soil and groundwater. This resulted in the collection of hundreds of additional soil samples, and the gas station was essentially torn up to the point of being unusable. The Smith brothers hired an attorney who contacted the original consulting firm's CEO to report that contaminated groundwater had been discovered and that the firm owed more than $800,000 to cover the cost of cleanup, ongoing monitoring, and lost profits. The attorney asserted that the firm was obviously negligent, and that the firm breached the contract with Larry, of which the Smith brothers were third-party beneficiaries. 
Could you explain what a third-party beneficiary is? Yeah, you bet. A third-party beneficiary is a person who's not ne- who is not a party to a contract, uh, but that person stands to benefit from the performance of the contract. So, for example, if I were to hire a landscaping company and enter a contract with them to provide landscaping services to uh, at my mother's property, um, the contract is between me and the landscaping company, but the, the third party beneficiary to that contract is my mother because she's actually receiving the services that I'm paying for. Sometimes you may have a contract that explicitly identifies a third party beneficiary. Here in the, the landscaping issue that I gave, the it's implicit because the, the landscaping is going to be conducted at the property that would be identified in that contract. The other part of this is that they're saying that the firm obviously was negligent and um, therefore would have breached the contract. What part of the contract do you think that the attorney is referring to in terms of having been breached? In this particular situation with the environmental consultant, it seems that the attorney's theory may have been that the firm was hired to identify the contamination, any contamination on the property, and that by, uh, and that they acted negligently in the performance of their contract by failing to identify any contamination. Another option would be that the attorney's position could have been that the member firm breached the contract by failing to perform in accordance with the accepted standard of care Normally, the CEO would have called the firm's professional liability insurer, and the insurer would have assigned an attorney to guide its insured. Unfortunately, the consulting firm had just switched to a lower-cost provider and opted for a policy that provided no coverage for prior acts. Therefore, this incident was not covered. Is it common for professional liability insurance to not cover prior acts? I would say that uh, it is very typical that professional liability insurers do not cover prior acts. Uh, And that's because of the way professional liability policies are written, which is always on a claims made basis, meaning that the policy is only going to respond to a claim when you have two factors met. And the first factor is that The claim arises out of services that were performed while that policy was in effect, and the claim is made while that policy is in effect. So generally, when you renew a policy, you have your same insurer, and that's an annual renewal. It's going to include coverage for claims related to services provided in previous policy years with that insurer. But as as many of our member GBA's members know, you're not going to keep the same professional liability insurer forever. So when you do go to switch insurers, that's that's something extra that you have to purchase when you're when you make the switch. So member firms should work with their their insurance broker, insurance agent, whichever they have, however they refer to them, to ensure that they are also getting um, was often referred to as tail coverage, um, and this would. This would prevent a, a member firm getting into a situation like like the firm in this case history because 
that when they get that tail coverage, that's covering uh, the prior acts under uh, previous policies with the, the, the former insurers. So if you didn't get the tail coverage, is your previous professional liability insurer, will they still cover you for acts that occurred when you had their insurance? They will not. Um, and that's because of uh, the, the two kind of the two prongs that I mentioned earlier. If the policy is no longer in effect and it's not the same insurer who has included coverage for previous acts, once that, once that policy expires, it's no longer responding or answering to any claims coming. The consulting firm refused to pay. The Smith brothers filed suit and the case went to a bench trial. After a 15-day presentation by the plaintiff, the firm's attorney asked that the judge dismiss all charges, and she concurred for several reasons. The firm did not breach the contract because it had done everything it contractually agreed to do. Do you agree with that? It seems to make sense to me, yes, because the firm did do everything they committed to in their proposal to Larry. They told him that they would do five borings, that they would advance to between 15 and 20 feet. They would do four of them down gradient from the USTs and one up gradient from the UST. And uh, they did all of that. So I, I would agree with the court's finding that they didn't breach the contract. In terms of the negligence charge, the plaintiff was unable to provide documentation of what the standard of care was for phase two ESAs two years ago, and therefore could not assert that the firm had not met the standard of care. In addition, the firm's report had clearly stated that no representations were being made about hydrocarbon contamination in groundwater since groundwater was not encountered during drilling. In this case, the language uh, regarding groundwater limitations really helped to get the case dismissed. Is that do limitations like that, that are in a report, but not necessarily part of the contract or in the contract language, do they typically hold up in court? I would say it's very common. And I would also note that it's, it's highly recommended to include limitations like this in reports that are being drafted, as well as to identify any assumptions being made in the process of uh, drafting the report. One of the key deciding factors for dismissing the case was that the consulting firm did not owe a duty of care to the Smith brothers because the firm was working for Larry. And so it wasn't foreseeable that the Smith brothers would rely on their report. Could you just explain what the duty of care means? The duty of care is a common law legal principle, which represents the degree of care someone must observe in order to prevent injury to others. This is like the bare minimum of care required to be used. So for example, it's the degree of care a person of ordinary prudence would exercise in similar circumstances. Uh, and what is a reasonable expectation for the person's actions giving, giving those circumstances. When a person is found to have not met their duty of care, they are, they are said to have acted negligently. And how does that differ from the standard of care? You can picture the duty of care as the general obligation of a person to avoid acts or failures to act that are likely to cause harm to others. 
the standard of care is more specific and narrowly tailored to include what steps are to be taken or avoided to prevent harm to others. Standards of cares are not static and they may evolve over time with the advances of technology and may vary from location to location. For instance, the applicable standard of care for geoprofessional firms providing geotechnical recommendations in Florida is likely to be different from the standard of care applicable to the same type of services being offered, say, in New England. The duty of care, that is not something that would be in a contract. However, the standard of care is. Is that correct? That's correct. It's, you're not necessarily going to write a duty of care into your contract, but it is highly recommended to include a, a well-defined standard of care in uh, GBA member firms as uh, standard terms. Typically, what, what you're going to see in contracts is a specification of what the standard of care is, which clearly identifies and set for, sets forth what level of care is owed, meaning you know, what are the parties agreeing as reasonable care under the circumstances of the contract. Does the duty of care show up often in cases like this? I mean, is it something that you would expect to to have seen come out as part of this case? Duty of care, standard care, it's, it's going to come up pretty regularly in claims against design professionals. And that's that's because often these, these claims against geoprofessionals involve allegations of negligence. Part of establishing a negligence claim, plaintiffs must show that the defendant owed the plaintiff a duty of care. Uh, so a successful negligence claim will also show that the duty was breached by the plaintiff the breach of the duty caused harm to the plaintiff and the harm to the plaintiff. You must be able to identify what that harm is. So there must be actual some sort of damages. One of the things that was written in the case history is that it wasn't foreseeable that the Smith brothers would rely on the consultant's report. And it's almost like they were so far removed from that original work order that that's one of the reasons why the duty of care didn't apply. That's correct. And in this instance, this case history, it seemed like the uh, the attorney for the member firm had it drawn out there that had the, the plaintiffs, the two Smith brothers, on one end and on the other end, I believe that he had drawn out the GBA member firm and had put all of the, the different parties in between them to show how far removed they were from each other. And I think when you can do a visualization like that, it really, really kind of helps to show the lack of foreseeability there. The Smith brothers should not have been relying on the phase two ESA report because it was prepared for the previous owner, Larry, and said so right in the report. In this instance, the court really did focus on the limitations uh, in the language contained in the report to support its conclusion that the brothers could not have relied on the report. For instance, if they had relied on the report, the court noted that there was a there was a statement in there that it was for the exclusive use of Larry. So why, if they were relying on other aspects of the report, why didn't they focus on that? Additionally, the the member firm noted in its report that there was no warranty or guarantees being offered. So why would the brothers not rely on that, but rely on other portions of the report? And then finally, there was the statement that the member firm did not encounter 
any groundwater during the borings and that they were making no representations about contamination of or lack thereof to the groundwater in the report. The court really focused on if you're alleging that you relied on this report, then how can you just totally disregard these these very prominent statements contained within that report? In terms of lost profits, the plaintiff was unable to prove that the firm had caused the damages which were in fact caused by the Smith brothers' decision to remove the tanks and to conduct additional investigations and remediation. Lastly, there is no proof that groundwater contamination was even there two years ago when the original drilling was conducted. So there are a lot of lessons that came out of this case history. First, always ask questions and be diligent about information gathering. In this case, there was a missed opportunity to get additional information on the site and adjacent properties during that initial site visit between the project manager and Larry. During the site visit, Larry provided almost no information on the environmental history of the property or of the adjacent properties. A question about former uses of adjacent properties would have revealed that a gas station was formerly located next door and that a spill had occurred. This may have prompted the firm to further consider whether they wanted to accept a project that did not have an adequate budget to drill to groundwater. This also points to proper training being critical for a positive outcome. The project manager in this case was relatively new to the position and didn't have the experience to ask appropriate questions or to push back if the budget didn't allow for an appropriate scope of work. Another related lesson is that proper senior oversight is very important during the scoping phase. Additional senior involvement could have led to a scope that included the advancement of borings to groundwater or a decision not to pursue the project because it didn't have sufficient budget to complete an adequate scope of work. This also leads to the necessity of applying an effective go-no-go analysis. In this case, not having the budget to drill to groundwater could have been a no-go scenario. Another important takeaway is to include report limitations and make them prominent. In this case, two of the report limitations helped to save the day. The first was the language indicating that no representations were being made about hydrocarbon contamination in groundwater, and the second was the language indicating the exclusive use of the report for the client, Larry. Is there something that firms should be doing to make report limitations hold up in court? Yes, making limitations prominent is a is good advice when drafting your reports. Geoprofessionals should also make sure they are clearly written and easy easily understandable, especially in this case where you have Larry, it, it doesn't seem like he had any other professionals reviewing this the report that was coming to it to him from the geoprofessional. Also, it's important to make sure your limitations are very specific. Like in this case, They specifically noted that they did not encounter any groundwater and that they weren't making any representations about contamination in the groundwater. The more specific, the more clear and more prominent, the better off the the member firm is going to be. The limitations stated that the report was intended for the exclusive use of the owner. So in that case, it was Larry and excluded any type of warranty expressed or implied and I think this this language uh, ex- regarding the exclusive use of the report for the client 
uh, was also very important in the judge's decision to, to dismiss the case. What are some examples of things that could happen if this wasn't in the limitations? And how could that have changed the outcome? The report is a, is a standalone document. So you it could be sent and transmitted to anybody with, a, with an email address or, or a postal address for that. It's really easy. So if you have, if you don't include exclusive use language in the report itself, anyone that had an interest in the property and came across that report might be able to argue that they relied on it justifiably and they had no notice that they should not be relying on it. So what it really does for the member firm is it exposes them to a potentially unlimited number of parties that may rely on that document without including that that exclusive use language in the report itself. So in this case, if they hadn't had that language in there, then the Smith brothers would have theoretically been able to rely on it. And that wouldn't have been something that they could have leaned on. Exactly. In this in this instance, it, it gave the the member firm more ammo kind of, so to say, in their defense, basically saying, look, Smith Brothers, this is right there in the report itself that this is for the exclusive use of Larry. You're not to rely on it. It wasn't the only thing they hung their hat on in their defense, but it was something that the judge really, really took into consideration when issuing the final ruling. Let's say the contract doesn't have anything in there about third-party reliance, but it's in the report limitations. Yeah, so what you're, you're kind of presenting is an instance where you somehow you have, you have entered a contract to, to do this phase two ESA and the contract that is signed between the member firm and the, the, the property owner does not include an exclusive use provision in the terms and conditions of the contract, but then they have put an exclusive use language in the report. In an instance like that, you may wind up in a dispute with your client who wants to give that report to, say, a, a bank for financing or allow, maybe they've. it's a similar situation to this where they want to allow the potential buyer to give it to their bank to rely on. And so if you don't have that in your contract with your client from the get-go, there could be a dispute that arises where the client is saying, hey, I should be able to let others rely on this. This isn't in the contract. And here you're putting it in this report that nobody else can rely on it. That's not what I agreed to when I signed the contract with you. Lastly, be aware of the limitations of your professional liability insurance policy. High-quality policies that cover prior acts are more expensive, but geo-professional firms need high-quality professional liability insurance. Do you have any words of wisdom on professional liability insurance or other types of insurance? Based on my experience, I would say that member firms should get their insurer involved early on with any claim or potential claim. Reporting and involving the insurer not only locks in coverage for the specific matter, but oftentimes insurers offer what is known as pre-claims assistance for when there is a chance for a claim, but no demand has yet been made of the insured. Any assistance that the insurer is offering through pre-claims, such as hiring of an attorney to advise the firm on how to handle a pre-claim matter, 
or other other costs they may be covered is uh, typically offered outside of the firm's deductible or self-insured retention. What this means is that it's being paid for directly by the insurer and not the member firm. The insurer offers this type of assistance generally to create goodwill with the insured, but also they're protecting themselves by helping to keep a matter from rising to the full level of a claim. would also recommend that folks do annual reminders maybe a month or two or before the end of a policy period, before you're going into renewals, to just kind of reach out to principals or other members of the firm to kind of ask them, hey, is there is there anything out there we should be aware of? And what this does is it lets, first off, senior leadership, and if there's in-house counsel, they can get involved and, and have a, a candid conversation internally about what the risk of you know, whatever the matter is potentially becoming a claim. Uh, and they could even discuss that with the insurance broker or or the insurer directly and see if it is something that they would want to kind of go ahead and put a put make a record of with the insurance company. That way you're reporting it before that policy expires. My final question is, do you think that in this case, the member firm got lucky by the judge dismissing the case? Or do you think that they really did have the adequate protections in place with their contract and their limitations that this was kind of a expected outcome? As far as being lucky, I I don't know that I would say that they were lucky. The member firm did incur more damages as a result of this than they would have if they had taken more steps to manage the firm's risk, risk overall. But in regards to the court's dismissal, I think that was a pretty fairly predictable outcome given the specific facts of this case. What did happen here is like this this case wasn't thrown out on a motion to dismiss, which is done very early on in a case. So once you get past the opportunity for a motion to dismiss, the parties are going to go through discovery, which if anyone has ever gone through litigation, you know that discovery can be very drawn out, very burdensome and and wind up costing a lot of money and a lot of time. So this this case went all the way through discovery. And then these final claims wound up at the bench trial. They actually survived summary judgment. And it was only after the the arguments were made to the judge in a trial that that they dismissed it. So there was a significant time and, and money, I'm sure, incurred in defending this. They could have avoided a lot of that had they done steps to manage their risk overall, like make sure they had their tail coverage on the insurance, that would have helped them in the the process for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your expertise with us. Yeah. Happy to be a part of it. Thank you for asking me. And that concludes this episode of the Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. I hope you were able to take away some useful information that will help you and others at your firm make good risk-based decisions in the future. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the GBA Case History Series. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the GBA podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. Nothing.